that. If you have a Bible, we're in Acts 15. Again, this is part two of uh, last week's conversation that we began with Acts 15. Really, um, the way I kind of outlined this chapter and felt led to teach this chapter, it was a two-hour sermon, so I split it in half um, and came back to it uh, in my studies the last couple of, uh, over the last week to uh, finish out that conversation. Now, uh, last week we talked about um, more theology, more understanding uh, why Acts 15, uh, the truths that it gives us are what they are, referring to Old Testament, New Testament, uh, law and grace, what it means to be saved and, 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 and understanding how this chapter really emphasizes that. And we talked about how this chapter is I believe, required reading for Christians. Of course, the whole Bible should be, of course. Uh, but uh, in terms of a Christian wanting to know uh, what we're made of and also know what our mission is. So tonight's going to be more about the mission. Last week was more about um, our, what, what we're made of and how we're saved and, and, and theology. Tonight's going to be more about practice, more about how this applies to our mission. Uh, because, of course, this is what the, the controversy in Acts 15 is as much about the theology as it is about the mission. Because the decision they make, they would make in this chapter or they, they come to in this chapter is going to determine um, how they go about preaching the gospel and, and what gospel, in fact, that they preach and uh, how they treat people uh, from different nations and, and of different races and of different backgrounds. So important conversation. And uh, the title of our message is not difficult. Um, so hopefully uh, we'll have a resolution at the end of this conversation um, uh, around those two words. That's our goal. And we'll, I think that'll make sense as we read a little bit more. Um, so last week we spent most of our time setting up this major conference. And it really is a conference that uh, took place. If you study church history, there have been these big uh, conferences. And, and, and conference sounds very corporate. It really, it's just these big meeting of the minds. Um, you've probably heard of the, of the Nicene Conference or the Nicene Council back in 300 or so, the 300 um, uh, back in church history when the church met over a very important issue about um, Jesus being God or just the Son of God. And, and if you study church history, you can find information about that. Uh, there's, been, there's, the, there's big milestone conferences that have taken place in church history. This is the first one, and it happens to take place in the biblical history in terms of the biblical uh, revelation. Uh, and if you're, if you have a study Bible, uh, you're or maybe even in your just regular Bible, there's probably a heading over this chapter or over part of this chapter, um, or in your notes, you'll see this referred to as the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council took place somewhere between 48 and 49 AD, if we can get that on the screen. So uh, we don't know exactly when it took place. Some Bibles say 48, some say 49, some say 50, uh, because everybody kind of moves the dates around, uh, and, and that's why some people say Easter was. 30 AD. Some people say 33 AD, uh, just because you know our history is good, but nothing's completely as accurate as, as we'd like it to be because of kind of documentations and so forth. So we believe this council took place between or around 48 or 49. AD. Um, and uh, what's going on in this chapter is the church was essentially divided up into two factions at this point, two uh, opposing factions, two opposing parties. Um, now, division of any kind is unideal, but just imagine if we only had two factions in the church in our day. I mean, my goodness, we have 200,000 factions within the church. Uh, so I would love to have two um, because in today's world, it seems like that there are so many sides, so many opinions, even people that 
go to the same church or not part of the same faction, if you will, in terms of what they believe and, and what they think is important. Now, in this day and age, of course, there was, there was no denominations. There were no organized Christian uh, groups. It was just one church that was trying to figure out uh, what, uh, what its mission was going to be and how they were going to stay, uh, what path they were going to stay on. And of course, this is a big milestone uh, because these two factions have developed within the church. Um, these two sides emerged as the church began to grow and expand. Now, we trace this back to the Jewish roots of the church last week. We talked about how many of the Jewish Christians were first uncomfortable that Gentiles were included. Remember, we talked about how they didn't want to go to the Gentiles, didn't believe Gentiles could be saved at all. Yet many relented rightfully so, and, and, and we're glad for that. They changed their hearts. They confessed that they were wrong. Many relent as they understood what truly saved them, and they believed that the same uh, could save them, uh, save the Gentiles. As the church grew and expanded, as Paul began his first missionary journey, really the Antioch plant uh, took this initiative with full force and full speed. Um, There was this stirring back in Jerusalem, however. Um, There was this discomfort amongst the church and its leaders. As reports came back from Judea or through Judea that uh, it just didn't sit well with Jewish Christians, especially those with deep roots in Judaism, which was, which was most of them, honestly, but those that had once been a part of the religious leadership of Jerusalem and of Judea, um, those Jews, though they were Christians now, it didn't sit well with them that Gentiles were joining the church with little to no knowledge or devotion to the Jewish law and the Jewish traditions. That they didn't like the fact that there were people coming into the church that did not know what they knew and did not favor what they favored and did not believe the things that they believed to be important, essential to serve God. Specifically the Jewish law, in the Jewish traditions. Now, now you would think uh, that this wouldn't be an issue with them because the whole evangelistic movement was being ran by one of their own. The apostle Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, was a former Pharisee. Philippians 3, he tells us he was a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the most righteous person he knew. Of course, he confesses later on that he was not righteous at all, but in terms of his own Jewishness, he had deep respect and deep affinity for Judaism, for his heritage and his roots. Yet Paul didn't seem to worry that he wasn't teaching the whole gospel. In fact, he believed that introducing the now defunct religion to them would only complicate things. And this is a Jewish man saying that. So we should probably pay attention to him, right? Paul had no plan um, to uh, bring the Gentiles under the Jewish law before he took them to Christ. Paul did have a plan, however, to introduce the Jewish text to the Gentiles. He didn't say that, he didn't think that the Old Testament wasn't important anymore. He didn't believe that it wasn't inspired anymore. Of course, it was the word of God. He intended on introducing the Jewish text to the Gentiles. He had a plan to translate the still true ethic and moral code to the Christian worldview that these Gentiles were coming to terms with, but they were brand new. They were just in the door and they came through Jesus, not through Moses, not through the law. They came through Jesus, he wasn't going to preach the Jewish law as authority because the authority of the Jewish law could not save the Jews, let alone save Gentiles. Now, he wasn't going to mandate that Gentiles become Jewish before they became Christians as if it was some requirement for salvation because there was only one requirement for salvation, a relationship with Jesus. 
Now, you'd think Paul, his well-documentation and well-proven reasoning for doing this would speak for itself and calm the Jewish Christians' worries and anxieties, but it didn't. And for this concern uh, emerged leaders, uh, and from this concern emerged leaders and the dissenting voices organized themselves um, uh, into this Pharisaic group of the church. And that's what Acts 15.1 tells us. We're going to retread some ground tonight. I want to kind of emphasize a few things that uh, need to be re-emphasized. But Acts 15 verse 1 tells us this, certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this group that were, this, these certain men were a part of a Pharisaic wing of the church. Down uh, later on in verse number five, it says a sect of the Pharisees who believed, so they were Christians or they, were, they confessed Christ, but they were formerly Pharisees and they had not let go of their Pharisee-ness. These Pharisees believed in Jesus, but yet they believed it was necessary to be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved. So here's what we have emerging from this point in history. We have a Pharisaic wing of the church and we have a Pauline wing of the church, as in Paul, the apostle Paul. Those that followed Paul's way of doing things, which was proven to be successful, and those that wanted to go the Pharisee way of doing things. And, and, and they did not only oppose Paul, and they didn't just seek to discredit and disqualify Paul as being out of God's will, but they went on, they went about their way to undermine Paul's teachings, as verse 1 tells us, they were sending their own missionaries to the Gentile churches to teach that Paul was wrong and to claim that, no, you haven't been saved or you haven't yet been saved. You must first become Jewish if you are to become Christian. Now, can you imagine how demoralizing that must have been after having led these people to Jesus, seeing God radically and miraculously revolutionize their lives. Can you imagine how this must have made Paul feel? That, 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 that these people come in the name of religion and attempt to dismantle everything he stood for and preached for and literally was suffering for? Can you imagine how he felt as these people who claimed to believe what he believed were trying to undermine his mission? I would imagine it would have be very upsetting, very discomfort, very disheartening. And of course it was for Paul. And this led to this council, this conference that was called by the church leaders because it was a deep division. And it was something that, that ran the risk of really putting the church on, on, on cement blocks and, and halting the movement if they didn't fix the problem or figure out what the problem was. So I, I wanna talk about what this really was about though. I wanna kind of get under, get in the heads of these Pharisees because Jesus had a lot to say about Pharisees and it seems that these Pharisees were still a lot more Pharisees than they were Christians. And that's a problem. Uh, and not that they couldn't, not that they weren't genuinely saved. I don't, I don't believe that they were. Luke says they believed. I don't know what that means. I just, I believe that they thought they believed. They thought that they were giving their lives to Jesus, but they still were holding on to religion. And I want to talk about this for a little bit tonight because I think this is a conversation the church needs to have. Um, if we can just do this for a couple of minutes, uh, what, this was a, what this was was a group of people who loved their religion more than they loved their Savior. You hear that? They loved their religion more than, than they loved the one they claimed to be their Savior. Now, I want to say this as delicately and respectfully as I can. The Jewish religion paved the way for Christianity, by all means. The Old Testament is God's word. But what the Jewish, Christi what the Jewish 
religious leaders did to the Old Testament was not God's will. Now, this isn't hard for us to understand. People do bad things with God's word all the time, don't they? People take God's word and take it in the wrong direction. So it's not out of our imagination to to suppose that the Jewish leaders of the New Testament that Jesus dealt with, they had taken God's word and did wrong things with it. And sadly, the Old Testament gets treated that way a lot of the times. New Testament still does as well, but the Old Testament especially. Um, While Jesus upheld the ideals and the values of Judaism, so Jesus still upheld the teachings of Judaism, what it it taught was right and wrong, the values that it put forth. And and again, the, the Jewish scriptures, they were radical in their day and age when they were given from Moses because the things that God taught about morality and God taught about the world were so different than the rest of the world. And things that people nowadays say, well, yeah, that's common sense. It was radical when Moses first taught it and when the Old Testament first put it forth. Uh, But Jesus upheld the ideals and values of Judaism, but he stood sternly opposed to the religious institution that it created that could not and did not and had no intentions on saving people and making a difference in their lives. Now, Matthew 23 is is the go-to chapter where you see Jesus lock horns with the religious leaders. This is what leaves them with the uh, belief that we've got to kill him. There's nothing we can do. He's wrong, we're right. He's a danger to our religion. He's a threat to our establishment. So we've got to kill him. Matthew 23, you should read the whole chapter, but this is just a snapshot of what Jesus said. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You claim to be ambassadors for the kingdom as if you're ushering in the kingdom, but you're literally shutting the door in their faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. People come to you thinking you've got the keys to the kingdom and you are not only shutting the door in their face, you're not getting in either. You don't have a relationship with God. You have a relationship with a religious system that cannot save anybody. He goes on. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell hell as yourselves. Now, what does that mean? He's saying, listen, y'all don't want anybody to come into your religion. You go across the world just to find the person that fits your ideal, that fits the bill for what you think can be a religious person. And you make them such, you mold them in an image that they end up becoming worse than you are. See the idea that y'all aren't welcoming anybody and everybody to come to God. You're selecting people and you're manipulating them and you're damaging them. You know you're wrong, but they come in and they think that you're right and they think that they're right. And that's hurting them as much or more than it's hurting you. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Now, Jesus goes on to say that you should do those things in terms of giving to God. But these religious people were so focused on these outward signs of their righteousness, they neglected the weightier matters. That's Jesus' words, not mine. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness, as in doing the right thing for those that are suffering, for those that are being oppressed, having mercy to those that haven't gotten to where you are, being faithful to your brother and sister, and being faithful to God. Jesus says, you are so religious, but you're not righteous. Hear that? You are so focused on being right at people. You're not right with people. These you ought to have done, as in the tithing and the religious stuff. He's nothing wrong with that. 
You should do those things without neglecting the others. And he says, you blind guides, you strain the gnat and swallow the camel. As in you are all about religion and what you've made it to be. And you make big deals about this stuff that matters not. And you ignore the things that actually mean everything in terms of changing people's lives. You see, these Pharisees no doubt joined the church because they were convinced Jesus was Messiah. Maybe because they saw a world where they could use Jesus to preserve what was otherwise dying. Maybe they just joined because they knew what they had was dying and they thought that Jesus was some way to preserve it. But Jesus had made it very clear that he wasn't preserving anything they stood for. He was coming to dismantle it and replace it. Sadly, though, the church brought some of those blocks with them. And the church tried to hold on to this religious mentality. Very quickly in the story of the church, we see Jesus is not interested in propping up religion. He came to tear it down and build a church. And what this event in Acts is doing is showing us what the church is and what the church isn't. Let me make that very clear. Acts 15 shows us what the church is and what the church is not. What the church should be and what the church should never be. And see if you can See if we, as you examine our own churches and our own world and the way that we do things here and the way that things are done elsewhere, allow this chapter and what we pull from this chapter to be our litmus test. While Paul stood for everything it was, the Pharisaic wing weren't about that at all. Again, they argue about what truly saves somebody and what is accepted in the church and what should be the message of the church. But you see, what's really going on here is these Pharisee, these Christians who were of the Pharisee sect, they were worried that they were losing their religion and not in the willful way. It was being taken from them. You see, Jesus always poses a threat to religion. He always does. That there are places with Jesus' name on the sign and church on the sign that will soon dismiss Jesus if it means protecting their religion. And I want us to be very aware of this because we are not any better than they were. The temptation for us is there as it was for them. And if we're honest, we can look around the church and look at through church history and we can see this being done over and over and over again. But let, me, let, me make, let me state some definitive things about what it means to be a church on the mission for Jesus. When Jesus is preached, men get smaller and God gets bigger. So let me translate that for you. If your movement, if your church, or if the church that you're a part of, or the institution that you're a part of, it's all about lifting men up and making men look big and special and great, God is not anywhere near that. Because when Jesus is preached, people get little and God gets big. Do you hear that? People get small and God gets big. Let's go back to the last one there. Our motives must be pure. If our goal is vainglory, as in selfishness, then this is not his story. And he won't be anywhere near it and he won't be a part of it. See why this is so important? When Jesus is preached, men get small and God is the one who is big on display and getting all the attention. If it's about man's will and man's attention and man's glory, God is not anywhere near that. Where Jesus is preached, the Holy Spirit must have control. As in, we can't have this attitude, well, I'm right, there's nobody else right but me. The Holy Spirit is the one in charge. If anybody resists him, 
progress is threatened and eventually halted. So we must trust the spirit and allow him to work in a personal level and in a corporate or in a, in a organizational level. He must be trusted, given room and time to work according to his word, his will, and his way. So what I mean by the Holy Spirit must have control is not somebody like me that says, I know what the Spirit wants. No, people that say that, people that wear microphones and stand in front of a Bible and say they know what the Holy Spirit says and it's not from the word of God, they're lying to you. People that say, well, the Spirit of God told me this, but it's not aligning with God's word, then the Spirit of God didn't tell them anything. Because as I said Sunday, what the Spirit of God might tell me, he can tell you because it's in his word. There's not some mystery that's hid behind some veil that only certain people can get to. That's Old Testament. That's Gnosticism. That's not Christianity. So we must submit to the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to be in control. As in what the Bible says the Holy Spirit is up to and what the Bible says the Holy Spirit is interested in, we must give him room to do that. And we'll talk more about that tonight. If Jesus is preached... Grace will be at the center of the meeting, our gatherings, our messages, and our ministry. So this is the dividing line between religion and Jesus. This is the clear-cut writing on the wall. If Jesus is indeed the, the motive, if he is being preached, grace will be at the center of the meeting, the message, and the ministry grace. Now that's what Peter, his entire defense, and let's reread those verses, verse 7 through 11, after they're all arguing with each other and they're trying to decide who's right, Paul or the Pharisees. Verse number 7, Peter stands up and says, men and brethren, you know what a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And verse 8 through 11 are just such monumental verses. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So here's a big thing about the Holy Spirit. He chooses whose heart he goes into, not us. You hear that? We love to say, well, the Spirit of God is there or he isn't there. We love to try to decide where the Spirit is or where the Spirit isn't. But the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit chooses to do in his, his barrier of entry, verse nine, makes no distinction between us and them. Purifying their heart. You say, well, there's too much sin in that heart. What do you think the Holy Spirit's going in there for? To purify them, right? Peter says, why should we test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we could bear? We believe through the grace of the Lord Jesus, we should be saved. We shall be saved in the same manner as they. So what is Peter's entire thesis? It's that grace is the, the, the motive behind Jesus's ministry and Jesus's church. And grace should be at the center of all we say, all we do and who we are. Now I wanna spend the time tonight unpacking what this means to have grace at the center of what we say, what we do, and who we are, because this is so important. This scripture tells us that Jesus is proof. Jesus is proof that grace is the means by which God sees us, moves within us, and changes us. What does Peter say? We have been saved by grace. So what does that mean? That Jesus is proof, that Je Jesus' posture towards you, our salvation is proof that grace is the means by which God sees us, moves within us, and changes us. So grace must be the filter the church applies to everything it does. 
We need to see through grace, move by grace, and trust grace to change us and rely on grace to change us and expect grace to change us. So that's a question we've got to ask ourselves. Is grace the filter by which we do everything? Is grace what we see people through? Is grace what operates within us and moves within us and, and, and changes our lives or is changing our lives? How our meetings look, what our messages communicate, how we minister, what kinds of ministries we do. Grace, let me make this very clear. Grace does not forego truth. It just informs how we handle truth. You hear that? Grace doesn't say, well, I know that's wrong, but we're just going to do, do this anyway, or we're not going to talk about that because it might hurt their feelings. No, grace just informs how we handle truth. It doesn't ignore it. So don't worry about it. Don't think that that's my message. That's not what Paul was preaching or Peter was preaching. So the litmus test for what is important in every facet of what it means to be the church, we've got to ask this question. God's grace is how we make a difference. Therefore, does this, does what we're doing, does what we're saying, does what we're all about, does this communicate or express his grace? That should be the question you ask. And if it's yes, keep doing it. If it's no, get away from it. God's grace is how we make a difference. So does this communicate or express his grace? And here's the big thing, here's the big risk. If it doesn't express grace, then no difference will be made and only difficulty will be added. You see, this is all about how are we gonna treat the outside world? What is our message? What is our posture? What is our attitude towards those that aren't Christians or those that are trying to become Christians or interested in becoming Christians that we're ministering to? If it does not express grace, then there will be no difference made and will only make things more difficult. Does this make sense? What's on the line in Acts 15 is so big because it's the resolution. It's resolution literally defines and details and directs us in our conduct as the church. The resolution should not be hard for us to accept. It, it, it shouldn't be something that we disagree with because if we are people well in tune with the grace of God and we should be, and I believe you are, it saved us and it sustained us. So why would we operate by anything but it? I think I have a hunch why we get there and why we go there. What this chapter reveals to us is that it's easy for Christians to lose sight of the very thing that indeed saved us and actually does sustain us, yet we walk away from it so quickly. Our nature, and maybe you don't think this about you, but this is me, so I'll just look at me. If you don't, want, if you don't have a personal example, I'll tell you I am the example. Our nature is to drift from grace to works. Our nature is to drift and shift from Christ's righteousness to self-righteousness. That happens to all of us. The most devout, humble person struggles with this, let alone most of the rest of us, the regular people in the room. Our nature goes from grace to works. Our nature goes from total dependence on Jesus to partial dependence on Jesus to complete dependence on self. So much that we justify ourselves or feel justified by what we've done on top of or in place of what Jesus has done. You know what the sad reality about religion is? Religion doesn't put up a fight against grace because it actually thinks it can make a better difference or a bigger difference. I want you to know this about religion because the devil is behind it. Religion doesn't fight because it thinks it's actually the better way. Religion just wants its way because it doesn't care about helping people. 
It just cares about disabling you. Religion just wants people to look the same. It's totally aesthetic for the Pharisees. What, is their, what do they want? We want people to be circumcised. We want them to look like us. That's what matters most. Religion is obsessed with appearances because it's so aware that it's empty. You hear that? Listen, I, I can't tell you, I've been, I've been in these circles. I was saved out of these circles. I know what these circles are like. They only care about what it looks like. And they're so controlling about what doesn't look right. And they're, so, they're policing what looks right or what doesn't look right. That's why so many religious people are all about what it looks like, the outside presentation, because it's a distraction from what's actually going on inside, which isn't much. I love what verse 8 tells us. Peter says, God knows, God cares about the heart. Remember when Jesus talked to the woman at the well? He says, I can give you something that's from your heart, indwelling within you, not just an outer band-aid. Peter calls out this crowd worried about how things appear and says, church, we can't be that way. We can't fall into this trap of self-righteousness. Jesus said this back in Matthew 23. You scribes, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Of course, they couldn't get that without him. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You're like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, they appear beautiful, but within they're full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So also you appear outward. You outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy. And lawlessness. You know why Jesus is saying this? Because they're distracted by this obsession with how they look. And the enemy gets us so wound up in this, we, could, we never give attention to what our hearts are like. And what we do is we justify ourselves by what we look like. And we defend ourselves by what we do and what we wear and how we look and all this other stuff. And we begin to feel like that's what saves us. It didn't do anything for us. And it doesn't do anything for us. As much as the devil in our flesh may try to counter this, I really don't think it's that difficult, though, for us to remain on the right path. I, I, I actually think, I really mean this, I actually think it's not difficult at all for us to ensure that we remain faithful to Jesus and his mission. And what our meetings look like, our messages sound like, our ministries look like. Uh, Peter's words in verse 11, I, wanna make, I wanted to spend this night doing this because I want verse 11 to be ingrained into our minds. I want this to be something that we think about every time we see a lost person, every time we look at somebody that we disagree with, every time that we have a conversation with someone who's just so blatantly wrong. Every time we watch the news and we see those people doing those things they always do and saying things they always say. And we're wondering how in the world can we ever reach these people? And when we begin to try to think about intersecting with them and reaching out to them and being a church for them as much as it is for us, when they're trying to decide how can we accept people into our churches that don't know what we know, they don't know the law, they don't know Moses, they don't know what's right and what's wrong. And, and, and are we really just supposed to give them Jesus and trust that to be the difference maker? Listen to Peter's confession. 
We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we shall be saved in the same manner as they. That is a confession and a confidence in all that we do as the church. Our posture towards those that we welcome and reach should be this. Notice how Peter flips it around. Because if I was saying that or if I was writing that, I would say that we believe God will save them just like he saved us. But notice how Peter says, do y'all realize that if not for the grace of God, we're completely lost and we're completely condemned? So we're talking about these outsiders as if we're so right and they're so wrong. Do y'all realize that it's nothing we've done that saves us? And if God wanted to take it away from us this instance, he could. And none of the holy stuff we've ever done would make a difference. Of course, God wouldn't do that. But what's Peter saying? We believe that we will be saved just as they will be. Peter's making it, he's putting it back in their hands and says, y'all, we're talking about salvation as if it's something we've done. If it's something we've accomplish as if it's something we've wrapped our arms around do y'all realize it's not something we've got a hold of it's something God has a hold of do you see why Peter flips it around like that Peter wants these people who think they're so secure in their own righteousness he says y'all come on if it wasn't for Jesus we would be teetering over hell this instance and apart from him we are So how can we trust that God can save them? The same way we trust that God can and will save us. Not because of anything we've done or will ever do, but because of his grace. Now let me just say this. If if that idea makes makes you feel uncomfortable, this idea that nothing you do, nothing you've ever done or will do for God makes you secure. If that makes you uncomfortable, that reveals to you that you're not trusting in Jesus enough. And as a pastor, I don't want you to feel like, well, it's me. It's all, you know, because one day you'll not do that. And one day that might be taken from you. And then what will you have? You need Jesus. Trust in Jesus because that's the only security we have. So I don't think it's that hard for us to stay on mission. It's not difficult at all for us to remain faithful if we remain focused on how God saved us and how does God save us. Let's break it down a little bit. Think back to when God first changed your life, when you first got saved, you first came to Christ, whether it was through the church or through some, through some conversation. It wasn't a style of church that saved you. It wasn't a certain environment that saved you. It wasn't a dress code. It wasn't a hymnal. It wasn't a worship song. It wasn't a a certain translation. It wasn't certain somebody's political views. You know what saved you? Or I'm pretty sure I know what saved you. You know what saved us? People made us feel accepted. A place made us feel welcome. And a message made us feel personally invited and chosen. Isn't it true? That what saved us, we were accepted, we were welcomed, we were invited, and we were chosen by the grace of God. That's what saved us. So we should give that same acceptance, that same welcome, that same invitation, and that same idea that they are as chosen as we are because the grace of God. What does verse 9 say? makes no distinction. 
The grace of God on display through the church that communicated the gospel, that enabled us to be saved, that empowered us to be different. If we constantly remember this, and how can we not? It would not be difficult at all for us to remain on mission for the kingdom of God. We dismiss certain controversies. I mean, church, religious people get in a fix over little things, and I'm one of them. I'm, I, I can be just the same. Religious people, we get so upset about certain things. But if we're focused on grace, controversies are dismissed. And we run to opportunities that present themselves. We'd let go of things that hold us back. We'd embrace things that could propel us forward. It wouldn't be difficult, as, difficult for us at all to be the church on mission if we would just make it all about grace. We must run everything through this test. Does this communicate God's grace? Will this build his people's faith? Or is this a potential burden, barrier, or obstacle? Now, let me make this very clear. This does not mean we conceal truth or water down what's right. By no means. It means we rightly align ourselves with the scriptures and teach what is right and teach what is harmful. Preach those things coupled with the grace of God that alone has the power to apply truth to hearts. To translate that for you, truth communicated graciously will clean hearts, build faith, and change lives. Truth communicated with grace cleans, builds, and changes. Religion is never gracious. Religion is impatient. Religion is judgmental. Religion wants everything to look the same. But grace will actually make the difference. Now, that doesn't sound very difficult at all, does it? In closing, let's hear what James says about this once Peter's part is done. Verse 12. All the multitude kept silent, listening to Barnabas and Paul declare how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered and said, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take them out of a Take, them, take out of them a people for his name. And with this word, this the words of the prophets agree just as it was written. And he quotes the Old Testament where uh, this was prophesied that Gentiles would even be saved. Verse 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. And verse 19 is the big deal. Therefore, I judge or it is my sentence that we should not trouble or we should not make it difficult. We should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Hear what he's saying? We should not make it difficult for those that are turning to God. As in, we need to remove any unnecessary barriers. And there are no barriers when it's with Jesus. We need to make sure that nothing is getting in the way of his grace. That's our idea. Not difficult. So as a church, we've got to make sure we're always asking this question. Are we making it difficult? Let's not get in the way of grace. The fear was, if we're all about grace, James, where do we draw the line? What are the rules for fellowship or participation? Are we just not supposed to have standards? And James says, no. 
He defines the rules the church should uh, operate by in terms of who is or who isn't allowed in fellowship. In verse 20, he says, but let's write to them that they should abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. You think, what in the world's all about? Now, James is, when he refers to the things polluted by idols, things strangled, and things from blood, James is referring to the fact that the Gentiles don't understand that the Jews are very, very, very easily offended and uncomfortable by idols. And the Gentiles would go to the meat market and they would buy this, they would buy meat that was offered as a sacrifice to Zeus or to some Roman god. And they would bring that to the festivals at the churches and they would say, well, I brought this and it would be bloody because the Jews would strain the blood, the Gentiles wouldn't. They'd bring this meat to the, to the pot, you know, church pot, potlucks or whatever and that would just be completely, would just tear the Jews up. James says, we need to make sure that we don't need to teach them the whole law of Moses about this, but we need to just make sure that they're not coming into the church with this attitude that, hey, this isn't a big deal. And we need to make sure that the sexual ethic of the Old Testament comes forward. The sexual ethic that keeps people pure. So what does James say that we're going to teach? We're going to teach that people should not be unnecessarily offensive or insensitive. Particularly to the Jews, but I think this is a blanket statement. That everybody in the church should be sensitive to other people. Well, they should know better or they shouldn't do that. We need to be careful of the words that we use towards people. You don't know how many people have told me. <laughs> Somebody said something. And you know what? They shouldn't get offended. I know that. But we shouldn't offend either. And I think there's a line there that we as Christians need to work towards to be, to not be unnecessarily offensive or insensitive. That's James' words, not mine. There was nothing wrong with eating that meat sacrificed to idols. But James says, you know what? We need to make sure people just aren't unnecessarily offensive or insensitive. And no questions about it. Don't be immoral. Don't be immoral. There's no reason. There's no excuse for that. It'll hurt you and it hurts them. So yes, the church needs a firm moral code of conduct to protect outsiders and insiders, but we also need to have a level of respect for those that are different than us and may not be where we are. You know, if I'm being honest, that that first one disqualifies a whole lot more insiders than it does outsiders, doesn't it? Religious people are quick to offend and are never very sensitive, but that's what religion does to us. It makes us only think about ourselves. Now, if you read the rest of the chapter, verse 22 through the end of the chapter is called the Jerusalem Decree. This is the letter they send out where they say, this is the word of God. This is the sanctioned uh, word from the church that you are saved by grace and grace alone. They make the decision that we're not gonna lay unnecessary burden. Verse 28 says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than necessary things. This is James and Peter and Paul's words, not mine. This is what James, Peter, and Paul and the Holy Spirit decide are necessary. Verse 29, abstain from things offered to idols, from blood and from things strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you'll do well. So what does the early church decide is the non-negotiables? This is what we're going to preach. This is what we're gonna, how we're going to treat outsiders. You know what, what it all boils down to and what it all comes, up, comes under in the grand scheme of things? Their message is love one another. Consider their weakness. Well, that don't offend me, but it might offend them. Consider their weaknesses and remember your weaknesses. We are all 
tempted with some kind of immorality or some kind of unethical thing, aren't we? Remember that. Consider their weaknesses and don't be insensitive to them. Remember your weaknesses and don't give in to them. Cling to Jesus. You say, well, I should give up something because it might offend them. Jesus is going to give you something better than that thing you had to give up. Don't worry. Consider their weaknesses. Cling to Jesus and find something better. Remember your weaknesses. Cling to Jesus and find strength. Church, we must always be examining our gatherings, our messages, our ministries, and ask ourselves, does it pass this Acts 15 litmus test? Are we relieving or are we laying burdens on people? Are we lifting burdens off of people or are we laying burdens on people? Are we making it more or less difficult? Are we communicating the grace of God through what we say, what we do, and who we are? You know why I think this is an as important conversation for us to have as it was for them in 50 AD? Because the church today is as confused as it's ever been about this stuff. Everybody has their own opinion and everybody likes to mix things together and figure out what they think is best and what they think is, is, is more important. Acts 15 makes it very easy for us. It makes it very clear to us. Don't make it difficult. Preach the grace of Jesus because that's what saved you. That's what can save them. Relieve burdens. Don't make it difficult. Give them the very grace that God gave you. I think that would be world changing if we would allow God to lead us and guide us with these truths. As a church, as a pastor, these are the things that I always think about and then I've, I pray that God used to guide me and direct me and instruct me. I pray that we as his people will take this scripture as important as it is and let it guide us in how we conduct ourselves as the people of God. Our world desperately needs it. The church's future depends on it. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to be in your house tonight. Thank you for this important conversation uh, around a very important passage of Scripture where the Holy Spirit says this is how things should be done with the church. Lord, help us to be people that don't make it difficult for those that are trying to turn to God. Help us to take those burdens, those barriers, those obstacles away. Yes, let us stand for what is right. Let us consider our own weaknesses. Let us remember their weaknesses as well, though. And let us strive to be a place that communicates the grace of God to all people all the time. God, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity to hear your word. May you lead us and instruct us and guide us after it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.